Good morning. My name is Jason Tyrell. I'm one of the elders here at Joy. It is good to be with you, good to worship with you on this Resurrection Sunday, and I have the privilege now of reading our sermon passage. I'll be reading from the book of John, chapter 20, and I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 18. If you don't have a Bible with you and want to follow along, there are Bibles in the chairs in front of you, and if you're using one of those Bibles, it's page 906. John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. And before I read, I just want to say what I hope we've been affirming throughout this service. This is not a fable. This is not a fairy tale. It is not a story that we tell that teaches us some good moral lesson. This is truth. Jesus really is risen from the dead. We really believe that our hope is based on a truly risen Savior. Let's read John chapter 20, starting in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, If you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we've been able to sing great truth about you and hear your word read, to be able to pray to you together and now Uh, Prepare our hearts, Lord, to hear from your word. Uh, We pray that you would give to Larry words 
that are from your spirit, that our hearts would be prepared to receive them. We thank you for the message of the empty tomb, a risen Savior, the hope of the world, Lord. We pray that the gospel would be clearly proclaimed and that our hearts would be transformed through this time. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this weekend, millions of people uh, in our nation have participated or are participating in uh, religious gatherings, right? Not only the observance of Good Friday and, and Easter, but also Passover. And so this is a weekend of great religious activity. Uh, but it, it's been noted that what is becoming the predominant religion in the West is called expressive individualism. Uh, that, that title may be foreign to you, but I, it's a reality that I trust you're familiar with. It, it can be summed up in what an author named Brian Rosner calls the prayer of the authentic self, which is a, a kind of evil foil on the prayer that the Lord Jesus taught his disciples to pray, it, it goes like this. My essence within, help me to find my authentic self. My kingdom come, my will be done from birth to seventh heaven. Give me today my daily spread. Forgive not my enemies as I suppress those who sin against me. Lead me not into self-doubt but deliver me from all external authorities. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are mine now and forever. The, that sentiment is the air, the cultural air that we are breathing, especially our young people. Uh, it's the air that communicates to us in so many ways, subtle and obvious, that the best way to find yourself is to look inward. Uh, that would communicate to us that the highest goal in life is happiness. That would communicate to us that everyone's quest for self-expression should be celebrated and should never be questioned. In a climate where that kind of thinking, where that kind of worldview flourishes, uh, it, it can present a, what seems to be a very hard and even impenetrable force field against the Christian message, uh, the good news that we've even been celebrating this morning. Who, who really cares if Jesus rose from the dead? Because whether he did or didn't, what really matters is, how am I feeling? Do I feel that this claim to resurrection helps me to be my best me? If it does, okay. If it doesn't, who cares? It's kind of the air that we, that we breathe. And it can make it difficult for us to know how do we communicate the good news to this 
this world that we long to reach with this wonderful news that they just don't seem to have time for it in their quest for the authentic self. Well, I do think the reality of death punctures a little hole into that force field. Because no matter how successful a person is at being true to his or her authentic self and freeing themselves from all external authority, that's not going to stop a person from being placed in a box and buried underground one day. As, as difficult as our society is laboring to ignore this reality, the, the kingdom and the power and the glory are not mine now and forever because there won't be any kingdom and power and glory for you when you're dead. And I'm not saying that to be needlessly crude or morbid on this day, but I'm saying it because the, really, in a sense, the point of our celebration of this day is that in Christ, God has defeated death. He's put death to death in Christ. That's thrilling news. But it's not thrilling news if we skillfully and strategically, even if it is somewhat subconsciously, suppress every thought of death. The Christian gospel is good news of great joy, if I could steal a Christmas verse on this day, it is that because it holds out to everyone in this room the overthrow of death. No more death. And not just no more death in a world like the one we're living in, with subway shootings and awfully in unjust wars and disease, but a world that is freed from all that pollutes and contaminates our experiences of joy in this world. And our assurance of that overthrow, the, what the Bible calls the first fruits of it, is the resurrected body of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what this passage in John 20 presents to us. The building that we are gathered in this morning would not be standing here today, I don't believe, if the things that we read in that passage just now in John 20 did not happen. We're not sitting in this building today if the events of John 20 didn't happen. So we want to think a little bit more about those events from John 20 and specifically from these verses I would like for us to consider uh, the evidence of the risen Christ, the initiative of the risen Christ, and the rebuke of the risen Christ. Evidence, initiative, rebuke. And it's, it's been my prayer that as we would consider these things that God might set us free from that tyrannical rule of self as we meditate on the power and the compassion and the, of the risen Christ. So first, evidence, evidence of the risen Christ. And I start here with a little bit of trepidation because I am mindful that some Easter sermons, and I think perhaps I've been guilty at this at times, I'm not sure, 
But some Easter sermons tend to, I believe, focus too much on providing apologetic arguments and putting out their evidence to support the historical fact of the resurrection. And those sermons can then come across in a very heady, intellectual way as as if a research paper is being presented on the historicity of the the resurrection of this man, Jesus. And I, I want to avoid doing that But I do think I have to go here for some time in the sermon because it's here in the text. And it it is, in a sense, it's it's what's driving the Apostle John in writing this account of Jesus' life, which we call the Gospel of John. He's writing to provide evidence that would compel his hearers or his readers to put their faith in Christ, the risen Christ. So we'll get, Lord willing, to the rest of John 20 next Sunday. But if you look in your Bible down at the last verse of John chapter 20, it says these are written, these things, these signs, especially right now on the heels of the sign of Christ's resurrection from the dead, these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wrote to give us evidence of why you should believe in the Lord Jesus. And we see some of that evidence here in John chapter 20. It's very early in the morning, we're told there, as chapter 20 begins. While it was still dark, Mary Magdalene, I actually wanted Jason to come up here because I wanted to see how he was going to say, I don't know if it's Magdalene or Magdalene, or, but I, I'm going to just say Magdalene. Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb. Maybe she's coming to continue. I think probably she's coming to continue the preparations for proper burial that had needed to be suspended by the arrival of the Sabbath on that Friday evening. And right there at the start of the text, we're told that Mary saw something. You see that there in verse 1. Mary saw something. She saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And that word, saw, appears repeatedly through the passage. Did you notice that as Jason was reading it? I believe it's six times in the passage. She saw this, or Peter and John came and he saw this. And then it concludes with Mary's dramatic announcement in verse 18, I have seen the Lord. And so the point seems to be telling us this is eyewitness testimony. Mary saw something that morning. Peter and John, they saw something. They're not just, as Jason just told us, they're not concocting some fairy tale. They saw something. That's what they're reporting. And there's an array of evidence that is being chronicled here to convince us that Christ really did rise bodily from the dead. We're told here in this passage that though his disciples did not seem to be expecting it, the tomb was empty on that Sunday morning. The body wasn't there. I said it didn't seem like they were expecting it because what's Mary's driving burden in this passage is where have they taken the body? She's assuming the body's been stolen. They were not expecting a resurrection on the third day, though Jesus had told them he would resurrect on the third day. But there it was, an empty tomb. We wouldn't be sitting here today in this building if someone had just come up with the body of Jesus. It's right here. But it wasn't there. We see there in the passage that these, there's mention of the burial clothes. 
including the face cloth, which was folded up in a place by itself. And that would give us evidence that the body of Jesus was not stolen. Because if you've, I don't know if there's many of you I trust, there's maybe a few of you here who've maybe had your house broken into, or perhaps a car broken into at some point. And when burglars come through your car or your house, they don't leave things neat and tidy. Right? Everything is strewn about. It's, a, it's chaotic. It's a mess because robbers are in a hurry. They don't have time to take a, 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 a little cloth and fold it up and just set it on the side. That's not how thieves operate. But the burial clothes are there, and that gives us some evidence that the body wasn't stolen. We're told in verse 9 about more evidence that actually the scriptures themselves had given. It says there that once John saw the empty tomb, he believed, but he didn't yet understand that the scriptures had testified that he must rise from the dead. We read in Psalm 16 earlier of that, that passage that wasn't speak. David did see corruption. He was buried and, he was, and his body saw corruption. But this passage in Psalm 16, it testified to a coming one, a son of David, as Craig mentioned, who would resurrect from the dead. And there are other passages in the Old Testament that testify to it. We see in verse 12, there was an angelic witness. That Mary encountered two angels in the tomb. They're saying, why are you weeping? A mild rebuke, I believe. You know, like, didn't, he told you he was going to rise. Why are you weeping? Most importantly, we see Jesus himself there bodily appearing to Mary. And that would have been a very embarrassing thing. I, I trust that you've heard this before, but this would have been a very embarrassing thing to communicate if it hadn't actually gone down that way. If you were creating a resurrection story in the first century to get that story off the ground and moving you would not have the first witness to the resurrected Jesus be a woman. It just wouldn't have, been, it wouldn't have gone down that way. I'm not set, trying to say something that is chauvinistic. I'm telling you about the world that was present in the first century. The, the testimony, the witness of women in that day was deemed inadmissible in a courtroom. So there, there's no way. The only reason that you would frame an account of a resurrection where a woman is the first witness, and she's the one then that goes and proclaims to the men, I've seen Jesus, he's alive. The only reason you would dare to present it that way is because that's what happened. There is evidence that Jesus really did resurrect, that he really did rise from the dead 2,000 years ago. Now again, on this special Sunday in the year, we always do have some visitors here. We, are wel we welcome you here today. You're welcome to come back every Sunday. And I, I would take this opportunity of your visit with us to really urge you to consider seriously the evidence that Jesus rose bodily from the dead 2,000 years ago. That conviction is what brings this congregation together. We really believe that the man Jesus rose physically from the dead 2,000 years ago. And we believe that it's reasonable. It does require faith, but it's not blind faith. There's evidence that God gives to us. These people, these first witnesses, were not just gullible people who were just prone to believe this. They had a hard time believing it themselves. And if you've read the other accounts in Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke, you see that you know that that's true. The apostles were, were doubtful even when Mary brought this news to them. So we, I do urge you to really 
examine whether Jesus, in fact, rose from the dead. This is really important for every single one of you in this room to consider because every one of us in this room, without exception, is resting their entire eternal destiny on being right about this. Uh, In Acts chapter 17, I didn't write this in my notes, but I want to flip there uh, for a moment. In Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul is preaching in the city of Athens, and he says there, In Acts chapter 17, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. There's going to be a day of judgment. When you die, when each of us dies, we will face God and we will answer for how we've lived our lives in this world. And he will judge by a man, and that man is the Lord Jesus Christ. And those in this room and those all over the world who remain obstinate and at war with Jesus. And I want you to understand that you can be at war with Jesus simply by living in ignorance of Jesus. By living in apathy towards Jesus is a way of remaining at war with Jesus. Those who remain at war with him will have a great and terrifying and eternal sting that is death. We we sang a song a few minutes ago, death, where is thy sting? Wonderful news for those of us who have put our faith in Christ. But for those of us who have not, there will be a sting. That sting is waiting for us and it will be terrible and it will be eternal. So I I urge you to think about whether this man, Jesus, actually did rise from the grave. There's evidence. He would not leave it to just blind chance. I'm not telling you about the coming judgment of God as some way of fear-mongering to try to get a particular response from you. I'm saying it to you because God's word says there's going to be a day of judgment and he will judge all by a man, the Lord Jesus, and he's given assurance that it's really going to happen because he raised that Jesus up from the dead. So this news will matter to you on that day, no matter how irrelevant it feels to you, perhaps, on this day. But I do want to say something to my Christian brothers and sisters here, because what I just said is kind of what we expect. Okay, he's going to appeal to the visitors. There's maybe guests who aren't followers of Jesus. I think this matter about the evidence for the resurrected Christ is of relevance to you, Christian believers. It's good for us. It's important for us to remember that our confidence is not built on wishful thinking and elaborate fairy tales and good feelings that we have. I do hope that our gathering this morning stirs your affections. I hope that you have good feelings when you come, not just on this day, but every time we gather together. But you understand, do you not, brother and sister? We don't gather because it makes us feel a certain way. We gather because Jesus rose from the dead 
on the first day of the week. That's why we gather on Sundays. And whether we're feeling down or discouraged or anxious or on the mountaintop of joy, we gather because he rose and because he commissioned his apostles then to go out and instruct his churches and his followers. And one of the instructions was that on the first day of the week, we would gather to encourage one another and celebrate him. If our confidence is not built on the resurrection, we're gonna have a hard time enduring in this sad world. There are deeply troubling things that we all must endure in this life. Situations sometimes that cause us to despair of life itself and to question whether God's really out there at all. Do you not think that sometimes? I do. I have moments where I look sometimes at unbelievers and I look at the, at, at, at unbelievers and I see how happy they are and how prosperous they are and how their lives seems to be going, not just even externally, but in their inward happiness, they seem to be better off than us Christians sometimes. And sometimes it makes me wonder, is, is it really worth it? Is, is life any better following Jesus? And when my feelings are betraying me, I return often to the fact I really believe that Jesus rose from the grave. And so, saints, this word about the evidence for the resurrected Christ is not just good news or not just important for our visitors to hear, but for us to remember. We have strong confidence in the trustworthiness of this book and of the Christian message because our Christ has been raised from the dead. And we would not be convinced of that without the gracious initiative of the risen Christ. Observation number two, the initiative of the risen Christ. John and Peter, we see there in verse uh, 9, 8, 9, 10, they observe the empty tomb and we're told that they return to their homes. I would love to know why they did that. We're not told why they did that. Don't know if they were going back to tell others or if they just went back like, well, who knows what's this all about? But they, they went back and yet Mary stayed. And we don't know all that she's thinking either, but we, I think we could conclude from what we read here that she's just, seems, she's just so distraught, she's so troubled that she can't simply just go home. She loves Jesus. She has been marvelously helped by Jesus. You know what we're told about Mary uh, in Luke's gospel, that the Lord Jesus had set her free from seven demons. And so she loves Jesus. Her life has been changed by Jesus. And so she has to find him. And by find him, I mean find his dead body. Because she, again, I mentioned this earlier, but she still seems convinced that he's dead, right? She is a faithful woman. She is a devoted woman. But she does come across in many respects here looking like a bit of a clueless woman. She just, she can't get past the fact, despite Jesus' clear promises that he would rise on the third day, she just can't grasp that he's really alive from the dead. She's, she's convinced someone stole the body and she's got to find it, right? She brings that up three times in these verses. In verse two, it's what she says to John and Peter, someone's taken the body. Then she says to the angels, so, where's the body? Could you help me find the body? Then, then in verse 15, she actually says to the resurrected Christ, what have you done with the body of, of, of my Lord? It's the resurrected Christ who she's talking to. 
J.C. Ryle has a couple of lovely paragraphs on that particular point in which he reflects on how uh, fears and sorrows of believers are often quite needless. That we pouring out sometimes, as Mary, pouring out anguished tears to the risen Christ in in bewilderment over where his body is. Now, I, I don't want to be harsh with Mary again. She was a devoted woman. She loved Jesus. I think we can tell that by the way Jesus interacts with her in this passage. But she's needy. She's needy for Jesus to take the initiative to make himself known to her. And that's what Jesus does. Right? Look, look there at verse 15 again. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. Don't you just wish you could hear how he said it? I would have liked to hear those words. And I'm not telling you, go find the chosen on TV and see how they put it. See, see what they think it sounded like? That's fine, you can watch The Chosen. But I'm just saying, I just wish I would know what it sounded like. Because that, that must have been some Mary. That must have been some word. It too, a life-changing word. A- at this moment, Mary became, I believe, a living embodiment of that teaching that Jesus had given to his disciples earlier in his ministry, John chapter 10, the sheep hear his voice. Speaking of the, the good shepherd who comes, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And we need to remember that too, beloved. Whether you're here this morning inquiring about Uh, Christianity or skeptical about Christianity, or whether you're a longtime follower of Jesus, we need to be mindful that while there is, in fact, good evidence for the fact that Christ raised from the dead, good evidence alone will not persuade any of us. We need the gracious initiative of the risen Christ to break through our dull and blind and hardened hearts with his life-giving word. The the darkness that clouded Mary's vision in this garden is, I think, a little bit of a microcosm of the biblical truth that is throughout the scriptures that faith, that salvation, that a restored relationship with God is a gift from God and not our own doing. None of us, none of us can see Christ rightly. We cannot see Jesus for who he is with eyes of faith apart from the gracious, illuminating, life-giving work of God as he speaks to us. Salvation is not about our finding our way to God. It is about him making himself known to us. Mary would not have found Jesus had he not come after her with that wonderful and precious word, Mary. The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, in their case, that is those who are unbelieving, and that was all of us at one point, in their case, the God of this world, the enemy, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 
For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's how any of us came to know Christ. He did that for us. When we were dead in our sins, when we were hardened in unbelief, when we were darkened and, as the scriptures say, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in us due to our hardness of hearts, when we had obstinately and willfully rejected his words and, that, and thus justly inherited the righteous sentence of eternal condemnation and misery, God graciously set his love upon a people. And in the fullness of time, he sent his own son. He took the initiative by coming after us. Jesus, the word eternally, became flesh to dwell among us and to give his life as an atoning sacrifice, bearing in his body the righteous judgment of God on behalf of all who would repent. That was the word that Paul used there in Athens. All who would repent and believe upon him. And he has given us assurance of this, that our sins have been paid in full for all who repent and believe, who turn away from contentedly living without God and turn to living for him through the power of Jesus who was crucified for our sins. He has given us assurance of this by raising that man Jesus from the dead. He was Romans 4.25, delivered up for our trespasses, and he was raised for our justification. His resurrection on the third day was the sign that God the Father accepted Jesus' death as a sufficient payment for the sins of all who would believe so that we could have a righteous standing with God, not on the basis of our works, but by his grace alone. And we, can, and we see that initiative right here in, in the, the message that Mary has sent. Who she called to go to, she says, he says at the end of the passage, go Mary, tell my brothers, that's an amazing word, go tell my brothers, Mary, that he's ascending. That's the first time Jesus refers to his disciples as his brothers. We know it's the disciples and not just his physical brothers because she goes and tells the disciples. Do you remember these disciples just three days earlier? They had shamefully forsaken him. They had abandoned him. And Jesus wants them to know. He says, stop clinging to me. That's, that's the rebuke. We'll get there in a moment. But don't cling to me now. Go tell my brothers. I want them to know. I want them to know that they're betraying, they're abandoning me, is forgiven and forgotten. Go tell them that I'm ascending, that my God is your God, that my Father has become your Father through faith in Christ. What gift of grace, we sang, is, my, is Jesus my Redeemer. There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. And he is all that for us because he is risen from the grave. If you are with us this morning and you have not put your faith in Jesus, again, we don't come to you merely with a word of threat, an ominous, there's judgment coming. There is judgment coming. And it's important that you know that. But that warning is grace. 
The threat of judgment is a gift of God's grace so that you would flee from yourself, so that you would flee from living for yourself. Oh, I don't know that there's ever been a culture so absorbed with, with identity, with looking inside to find who you are and asserting who you are, no matter what others think. But the reality is that we were made for the affirmation of someone else. We were made for God. We were made to have a loving relationship with him, to live joyfully under his good and wise and loving rule. But you and I and all of us here, we've abandoned that. We've rebelled to seek our own interests. And there is judgment for that. But if you're here this morning and you've not repented and put your faith in Christ, he's given you time. There is a judgment coming, but now he's calling you to repent. And oh, what good news it is to repent and live your life for one who so richly loved us that he would lay down his life for us. Oh, come to Jesus today. If you have questions about what it would mean to do that or how you might make that step of turning away from your sin and turning towards Jesus I will be at the back after the service. There are many people, I'm sure, sitting around you who would love to help you. Don't leave here without asking someone to help you consider what that would mean for you. Beloved brothers and sisters, we have a great hope. We have a great inheritance. We have the promise of full and free pardon redemption from all our sins, deliverance, transfer into the kingdom of God's beloved son, justification, a righteous standing, adoption that we can call on the Lord and creator of the universe as our father, the hope of glorification of one day seeing him as he is and being cleansed forever from the presence of sin, unending mercy, unfailing security. We have all these promises because we have a living Christ. Only the living Christ can make us heirs of a living hope, as Peter said uh, a few decades after this encounter at the empty tomb of Jesus. He said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That inheritance, Christian brother and sister, is sure and it's certain because Christ has risen from the grave. It's sure and certain, but it's not all here now. And I think that's what brings about the rebuke of Jesus that we need to consider here in closing. We see it there in verse 17. After Mary has had this transformation from weeping before the resurrected Christ to being overjoyed, crying out, Rabo, I don't know how to say that either, but Rabboni, teacher or perhaps master, the, the idea of a teacher in that culture carried more authority to it than we might understand today. So this was maybe not a, a confession of his full divinity. She maybe grasped everything, but she was, uh, the Lord Jesus was her master teacher. So she has this amazing experience. And Jesus said to her, verse 17, do not cling to me. It seems as though Mary at that moment just fell down before him, perhaps was grabbing his feet, clutching at him. He said, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. 
Mary has come in at this moment. She's come into that experience that Jesus had prepared his disciples for just before he went to the cross. In John 16, 22, Jesus had told his disciples, you also have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. No one will now take Mary's joy from her, so Mary is seeking to ensure that no one will take her Jesus from her. But Jesus says, don't cling to me. I've not yet ascended to the Father. It's a bit of a cryptic statement. The logic there is strange. Why, why would he say that? What does he mean? Uh, I'm not 100% sure, but I think he's saying something like this. Mary, it, it's not time for that right now. Don't cling to me like I'm about to disappear permanently, Mary. I, I'm on my way to the Father. There's more yet to do. You don't want to keep me here. As much as you feel like you want to keep me here right now, you don't want to keep me here right now. This, this moment right now clinging to me is not what's best for you, Mary. I have to finish my journey. I have to return to heaven and to my home and to return to my father, and it will be better for you that I go because when I go, I will send the Spirit to continue my work. And now that I have defeated death definitively, you need not fear that anything would ever separate you from my love, Mary. Don't cling to me now. There's more to be done. I have to go away. Jesus had told his disciples in John chapter 14, let not your hearts be troubled. You know these words. You hear them so often at Christian funerals. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. He's going to go. He's preparing a place. While he's preparing it, he sends the Spirit. The Spirit is going to enable us to know the love of Christ, to enjoy the love of Christ, to have Christ living in us. That's why he says it's better. It's great to have Jesus with us physically. But we can have Christ in us. God's word says Christ in us is the hope of glory. And he has to go. It's not time to be done, Mary. We're not done just yet. It's a, it's a mild rebuke. Again, he loves, he is filled with affection for Mary. I think that's clear. But it's a, it's a rebuke nevertheless. And it's a rebuke that we, I think, ourselves also need to hear. Because sometimes, do we not, beloved, do we not grow mistrustful of God? at times because he has not yet brought to fulfillment the great and precious promises that our hearts are so hungry for. We think he's resurrected, he's shown his power, why don't you act in this way or that way? And we're waiting for the fulfillment of promises which he has said is coming, but they're not here yet. And so Jesus is saying, don't, don't cling to me, Mary. There's still yet work to be done. We're not home yet. This is not the fullness of joy that you were made for. Go, go and tell my brothers that I'm alive and I'm ascending because I've got to go and get everything ready for that coming glory that my bodily resurrection is just a foretaste of. I've got to go get ready that fullness of joy and that, those pleasures forevermore that are at the right hand of God the Father. I'm going to go get ready that perfect home where the dwelling place is of God is with man, when he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, 
That, that world where the glory of God is our light, such that the sun is not even needed. That new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells, that eternal weight of glory that our momentary light afflictions are preparing for us. Saints, no, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what the risen Christ has prepared for those who love him. And you know this, but you need to be reminded of this. We're not there yet. There's more work to do. There is a mission to advance. When we get weary, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Why do you wait? We, we, we need to be reminded and chastened by those words in 2 Peter chapter 3. That God's patience is allowing people an opportunity to repent. Right? Why does he delay? Because there's yet more people to repent and come into this joy with us. Aren't you glad that he waited till you came to put your faith in Christ? There's work to do. There's glory coming. That day is coming when all things will be made new and faith will become sight. And the ransomed of the Lord will return to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy, and all sorrow and sighing shall flee away. It's coming, but it's not here yet. Don't cling now. There's work yet to do, beloved. And we do that work knowing, on the basis of the resurrected Christ, that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. 2 Corinthians 4.14. This hope is ours now as an anchor for our souls and for our lives now because Jesus has been raised. The resurrection of Jesus has not yet led us into that fullness of joy for which we long, but it does give us a larger and greater context for the afflictions and the pains and the sorrows that we endure on the way to that final inheritance. If you were to take a glass of water, if I had a glass of water up here and I was to put a, a medium-sized rock into that glass of water, you would see that the rock would really stir up that water and the water would go spilling out. But if you were to drop that same rock or even if you were to take a much bigger rock, say a cinder block, and if you were to drop it into the Atlantic Ocean, that much larger context of, an, of the ocean would ensure that that water would just not even be hard, it wouldn't be touched in the big scheme of the water, the way a little glass of water would. And brothers and sisters, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus is a vast ocean of hope and encouragement and consolation, which we can hold on to amidst all the battering and bruising that beats upon us as we live and testify to the Lord Jesus in this tumultuous world. That ocean can absorb a whole lot of rocks because we live in an environment, we live in a context where God is so powerful that he raised his son from the dead in victory over sin and death. We live in a context where our redeemer and savior is alive and he is with us by his spirit and will one day return and fix all that is broken in our lives. In the world, Jesus said, you will have tribulation, but take heart. 
I have overcome the world. And we are assured of it because it's no dead Savior who said that. But it is the risen Lord Jesus. I urge you, believe upon him today. Hope in him today. And it can be and it will be well with your souls. Love you, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do praise you for the great hope that we have in Christ. If it's only in this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. We, are, we may not feel it so much, but we are a really laughable group of people with all this singing and praying and screaming as I've been doing up here if Jesus is still dead. We thank you that in fact Christ has been raised from the dead. And we pray that the hope of his coming again would fuel us and strengthen us and make us firm and faithful in carrying out the mission that you've given us to do while we wait. We long for all things to be made new. We long for that day when there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore, and that is all that we know forever in increasing intensity. We long for it. We're not there yet. And so help us to not be clinging to you wrongly, Help us to be clinging in faith to those sure promises secured by the risen Christ that we might find ourselves faithful and steadfast and immovable and always abounding in your work, knowing that in our risen Christ all of our labor is not in vain. We ask for this all in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.